Today, my guest is Steve Haleko, political director of the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus, or CCPC for short. This is by far the longest episode I have released, so I'm going to keep the introduction short. So as the seemingly endless marathon that is the 2020 Democratic primary gets underway and starts to take up all the political oxygen in our brains, I thought it was important to make sure to keep my ear to the ground more with local issues. So that's why I reached out to Steve. And in the first half hour, he and I discuss his background in political organizing and the campaigns that first activated him and talk a bit about our experiences with uh, Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. From there, we move on to discussing Clash, the Cleveland-led advocates for safe housing and the work they are doing to force the city to deal with a lead problem in older houses and rental units that is causing lead levels to skyrocket in children. We're seeing levels spike up and above what uh, Flint is experiencing with their water crisis. Then we spend the last half hour discussing the Green New Deal town hall that the CCPC is helping to organize. Uh, that town hall is actually the reason I am releasing this episode today. If you are in Cleveland and would like to attend, it will be held at the Brooklyn branch of the Cuyahoga County Library at 7 p.m. on Thursday, March 21st. That would be the day after this episode release. Um, I would be there, but my wife and I have our first show booked in quite some time, so we're going to have to miss it. But I will be bringing Steve back on again, uh, hopefully regularly, and we will hear about how this town hall went in uh, a few weeks. As always, I want, I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please do rate us on whatever app you're listening and uh, let people know about the show. It's still a pretty small audience, and if I sit down to talk with someone that you think more people should hear, uh, please help them do so. All right, I think that covers everything, and now here's my interview with Steve Haleko. So I'm curious, uh, before we, like, uh, I have a lot of questions about what your organization is uh, doing right now and has on the horizon. Um, I'm just curious, though, uh, what's your background in political organizing and that led you to this position with the CCPC? Well, um, I'm a retired teacher. I taught 35 years history in the Berea City School District. And um, my background in organizing sort of began the last 15 years of my teaching career when I got heavily involved in my union, the Breer Federation of Teachers, and then I actually served on the Ohio Federation of Teachers Executive Council. And so that was mostly union issues, but yet we dealt with state issues because the state budget and the state laws concerning uh, public education are, are very important. Um, I gradually started to work on politics um, as my kids got older and grew up and you know I was done raising my family um, the first campaign that I worked on a lot I had always done like volunteer work maybe canvas like a weekend when I could you know for campaigns I believed in uh, was 2008 I was a neighborhood team leader for the Obama campaign um, and then I did the same thing in 2012 but uh, I really learned organizing in 2011 during the repeal of SB5 campaign. What was uh, that? Uh, I wasn't living in, was that an Ohio issue, I assume? 
Or- right. Now, uh, what happened was John Kasich had just become governor, and his first uh, major legislation out of the box was Senate Bill 5, which essentially banned collective bargaining um, by public sector unions. Uh, now, unfortunately, you know, we kind of have that now with the Janus case. Uh, but in 2011, he, that law was passed, and it was an unprecedented grassroots effort around the state um, to launch a referendum to repeal the law, which we successfully did in November of 2011. Can I ask, uh, was that law by any chance um, ALEC, something that came out Absolutely. of the ALEC? ALEC yeah. wrote it word uh, for I, word. I, I, that's, can you talk about that just for, because well, that's something that I have followed for a while, and then like my wife is extremely up on politics, and I know people are up, and then they're like, I'm like, wait, do you know about Alex? And they're like, no. So I just love to like pause and, and expound on that whenever I can just to not make the assumption people know what Alec is, not take that for shorthand because a lot of people still don't know. Right. Um, Alec is a, a, a con- very ultra conservative and, and I can't uh, remember exactly what it stands the for. The American Legislative Something Council. Right, uh, ex- that, that's ex- it. I mean, yes. if only I had all of the knowledge of the world next to me right well, now. Well, the, the law affecting, um, in 2011, SB 5, was the exact same law that Alec got passed in Wisconsin. Their new governor, Scott Walker, and it, I, you might remember you know, what was happening in Wisconsin. The it immediately, when you said that he was passing a bill like that, my brain, I thought of like, that sounds like what Scott Walker did. And I know he was a big Alex Schill, like. Exactly. And so it was John Kasich at the beginning of his career. He's, American Legislative Exchange Council, because that's what that's they, they, yes. they just write legislation and then find or skew state legislators and find whoever they can to just take the bills that they write that are written by the industry people. Exactly. And exactly. then push them out like, hey, look, we've done all the work for you. All you have to go out there and say, you know, you support it. Well, and 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 writing legislation is a very tedious task because it can't contradict what's in the Constitution. I mean, writing even good legislation is like that. Yeah. It can't contradict what, what what is in the Constitution, and it's got to be a lot aligned with existing statutes. So Alec does that groundwork for right-wing conservative legislators. Um, but anyways, what, what happened in Wisconsin in 2011 was the same thing that happened in Ohio, except the difference was, uh, unfortunately for Wisconsin, they do not have a provision for a referendum on a law like we do in Ohio. And so that's what happened. Um, from, for, for me personally, I ran the Southwest Cuyahoga County office um, for the repeal of SB5, and that's how I learned the nuts and bolts uh, of campaigning. Um, I retired from teaching in October of 2013, and I ran for state representative in Ohio District 14 then, and I actually ran again last year, um, both times losing a very close election to a very politically powerful family uh, in the, in Cleveland. Um, and And that hasn't been um, after I ran for office in 2014, like running for office hasn't been like. Now, was that something where you had the idea and you saw that there was like, this is someone who deserves to be challenged and you're like, I should do it. Or were you drafted in any way by like people saying like, we- well, the first time I ran, I, I, it, I, I ran as a progressive voice against more of a centrist 
uh, candidate. Uh, it was Martin Sweeney, who was then president of Cleveland City Council. And, and it, was, it was surprising that I came so close to beating him. The second time I ran, it was kind of a last-second decision because um, the candidate we had endorsed decided not to run, and we wanted a progressive um, in in the race. Now, that's a, a lot of things are interconnected, and maybe we can get to that later, but uh, my organization, the Progressive Caucus, we endorse candidates. And so the second time, we needed a candidate in that race that was a progressive, which is why I jumped in at the last second. Um, but when I ran in 2014, I, I knew I wanted, and, and I, both times I ran, I ran not shy about progressive. I had a campaign slogan of 100% committed to the 99%. And uh, you know, my platform was, let's try to get Medicare for all in Ohio. Uh, let's try to get the $15 minimum wage. Let's push for green energy. Uh, and, and, and quite possibly, um, you know, I live, the, the state rep district, District 14, is, is, is not a very progressive area, you know, like it is out here. And that may have been why I didn't win. Where is that area where uh, Middleburg Heights and, or is... It's uh, Middleburg Heights, Brook Park, Brooklyn, Parma Heights, and then Ward 16 and 17 in Cleveland. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and then I worked in 2015 as a consultant for the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party um, and, you know, other political jobs, but uh, the turning point of my activist career... Um, came in 2016, and actually the fall of 2015 when Bernie Sanders ran for president. Ah, so you're Bernie bro. I'm definitely a <laughs> Bernie Sanders supporter. Uh, and what happened was um, I connected with uh, volunteers in the Cleveland area, and uh, our the, the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus office, uh, which is located in Lakewood, um, actually was the first Bernie Sanders campaign office in the state of Ohio. Uh, we opened it up uh, a couple months before the national staff got here, and uh, it was all volunteer-funded, all volunteer-staffed. Um, and our organization, the Progressive Caucus, is still all volunteer-funded, all volunteer-staffed. I'm the political director. I work without pay, but I have a nice pension from my teaching career, so that's how I pay uh, my bills. Now, um, as the, the Sanders campaign was continuing, the Ohio primary was in early March, um, same like it's going to be in, in, in 2020. Um, but we had a volunteer organization that was just off the charts, you know, as far as energy. And uh, we actually traveled to uh, New York and to Pennsylvania, worked on those primaries and uh, the last primary in California in 2016, we had people in our office making calls into California until 11 o'clock at night, you know, the time difference. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, even, you know, we knew Bernie wasn't going to win the nomination, but um, we decided to form the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus before Bernie. To make it bigger than Bernie. Yeah. Yes. And have a staying power. That's that's smart. I like exactly. That. Exactly. Um, and the day in July that Bernie Sanders announced that he you know was dropping out of the race, we had everything ready to go. We had a Northeast Ohio for Bernie Sanders Facebook page website. And then that was what was the top of our office. And then we 
put the new CCPC banners up and changed the website and you know they invited people who you know were with us with Northeast Ohio for Bernie Sanders to to join the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus. Now, well, that was the, fun, the it's interesting that you say that like you know you guys set up the first real like Ohio outpost of, of Bernie Sanders volunteers because that was uh, a similar thing happened in New York. The group that I was just living near was uh, there were the Brooklyn Burners. And um, that was who I when I first was like, oh, I want to go volunteer for Bernie. And uh, when I got to know the organizers, they said, yeah, we basically like when he announced, we just set up shop and started doing what we could. And then when the campaign finally realized they needed they didn't know they were going to make it to New York. That was so deep into the primary for what a long shot his campaign was that like. So when they came around to New York, they're like, oh, you guys are like the biggest organization we have in like the city and the state. We'll just. Right. And roll I, you into what, you know, we're not going to like set up a competing like now you come do things our way or, you know, they it officialized things. But it was the same thing. We're like, we already have supporters that have set up an organization. We will take that. And, run and, and that that was true. What I found all, all over the country. Um, and I remember because what we did well for the Pennsylvania primary, we went to Pittsburgh. OK, for the New York primary, we took people on weekend trips to Buffalo, obviously closer. And there were. The organization in Buffalo that was just like that. They had formed organically on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, throughout that campaign, you start to get bits and pieces of how the, the system is rigged. In, in New York, you have to declare what your party is October before an April primary. Not, not only that, well, because I went deep into, I talked to you briefly on the phone, and um, I had an interview on a previous episode with someone who was a writer from Boston that worked as part of this ad hoc volunteer team that went into just took taking like the New York primary on as like just investigating what was going on. We were just a bunch of people. Like I happen to have free time. I had just started freelancing, and uh, other people were like activists. One was like an ex poll worker who was. Um, the, actually a publishing agent for Greg Palast. Mm-hmm. So she knew deeply about like, a, like election shenanigans. And so we really got into it and it was, yeah, we went back looking into like all the history of their board of elections problems. And it went back as far as like, they were sending out the wrong, like lot, like the wrong mailing to people like, Oh, you're supposed to vote on this date. And then they had to like correct it. And, and then there were purges and all sorts of things that it was just like, Oh, my goodness. And, and if, if I remember correctly, a lot of the purge happened in, in Brooklyn where a large number of millennials it who would have went from si- the day before it got reported that it was 60,000. Then the day of the election, it came out. Oh, it's actually 120,000. And then they scapegoated this Republican clerk. They said, oh, she did it by accident or whatever. But then I went to public testimony. I spent hours attending public testimonies of people who were. And what was so frustrating was the the Board of Elections, the people who had the public hearings, who ran it, treated the crowd so hostily and dismissively. You had like veterans getting up. You had just these earnest people. These weren't just like far out there wacky activists who just were were screaming and, and being like, you know, belligerent. These were just very like, I don't know what's going on. People who were, yeah, poll coordinators saying like, I have been in. I have never seen anything like this. And they were like, okay, you've said your piece, next, next, next. And they did not take anyone seriously. They were just like, look, it's okay. We know what we're doing. Okay, you said your piece, go on. And then later I went to hearings organized by just community advocates, like voting rights organizations, who let people speak at length and ask follow-up questions and were actually shocked and disturbed by what they were hearing. Stories of like, 
college uh, organizers mm -hmm. went out and they registered whole swaths of people, turned them in. Those never even got into the database to be purged. Like, just like that happened with several different people. And um, it all just went back to like how much did the Democratic, you know, machine there was trying to tilt the scales or was it incompetence? That was the yin and yang. It was like they would, it, could it be incompetence or was it? Well, speak, malicious. speaking for Ohio, it's a, a combination. I think it usually two. is. Um, because even when they're on the right track, there's incompetence. Uh, mainly because, you know, in, at least in the, with the Ohio Democratic Party, their whole organization tilts towards their vendors who are contributors and they get kickbacks and it's, you know, so they can't really function you know, at the at the grassroots level. But just another note on, on, on 2016, you know, talking about that before we move on. Um, I was a, a Bernie delegate at the at the Democratic National Convention. And I don't know, you know, if you guys watched the convention or as much there. as I could, I was following everything pretty closely. Well, what really struck me was the second day of the convention when there was a massive walkout of Bernie delegates. And um, if you were watching the convention on TV, you might remember people like Rachel Maddow saying a handful of delegates walked out. It wasn't like that at all. It was like a massive walkout, yelling and screaming, and somehow the Clintons got MSNBC to not cover it. Well, that's what I mean. More those... on Fox News <laughs> because, of course, Fox News wants to show the division. Yeah, you, they, you know, yeah. and, and that that was one of the events that I experienced that really well that showed was what, me how big the corruption is. It's really eye opening when that was what I I was experiencing when I was covering you know uh, what happened in New York, you know, in New York. But that was before the the convention, obviously. But being on the ground and seeing things and then i would read mainstream coverage of talking about new york and talking about like that some people were saying that there was you know impropriety and how the mechanics of the election went down and these big you know columnists would write about it like they but they hadn't seen any of the things i had right. seen but right. they would write with such confidence like you're all just being ridiculous everything was fine but it's like you don't know any of the things that i know and you weren't seeing it or if you did you're deliberately telling you know dismissing well, it didn't want to see it yeah you know uh, because you got to please your editors and you got to please the, the the corporation that owns your news outlet uh, and if you don't you're gone Mm -hmm. So, um, but uh, back to the progressive caucus and then, the, yeah, and I definitely, and, the, and, then, and then we'll get to where we're at today. I'm very interested. That, it's different. fun to talk. Yeah. I don't get to talk yet. And I'm, that's really fascinating. I haven't spoken to anyone that's at the convention to hear those sort of things. And, um, but yeah, so this let, but I love that this, the great thing about the Bernie campaign, which, you know, people will be like, Oh, he, he came and went and he failed and the, the same thing would be said of like, you know, Occupy. Oh, it just was this blip. And then it but there's just like the fact that people come together around something like Occupy. They learn about issues. There's so many things because I, I was in New York when that happened mm -hmm. and I went down there and we witnessed a lot. My, I actually went viral proposing to my wife there um, just because it, we weren't engaged. And I was like, this is a beautiful thing. I'm going to do this here. Right. And um, well, the Occupy movement in Cleveland was down at Public Square. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know this. And, and I know it had some troubles with like uh, there were members who, 
you know, got snatched. But I don't, I don't know how much that was like, oh, they were the same thing they do where they entrap Muslim extremists and the FBI basically says, they like, did you should do this awful thing. You should do this awful thing. And then when they try to do the awful thing, they were talked into. Then look who we caught. Look who we caught planning to do an awful thing. Right, right, right. Um, well, I've actually read stuff. And, and it's hard to know, you know, in, in, the, in the scope of history, like what influences what, but that the Occupy movement was a precursor to the Sanders Well, campaign. that's what I was getting and, to and, is saying and, there's these connections and these things people are exposed to that have this. I know so many great activists from that. And then from the Bernie Sanders campaign mm-hmm. spawned organizations like yours and people right. like finally finding out we're not alone in wanting these things addressed. That's what Occupy was. It was like for everyone to come together and just kind of scream about everything that's going unaddressed it right, felt exactly. like bernie exactly. was a nice and that felt like activists undergraduate school to some degree and then bernie felt like grad school of now we're gonna we have a focal point we have a candidate and a platform to put all that occupy energy into because then most of the occupy people i know were like all about bernie right exactly exactly and that's where i met um, a lot of the occupy activists they they worked on the sanders campaign uh, and, and and so forth um, and then, too, um, you know, a lot of, I, I mean, I'm a suburban white privilege. I, I you know, I admit that, okay? But it's, it's like you see, and, and, and you don't want, you know, a lot of my personal motivation is I don't want my kids, you know, my, my daughters are in their early 30s, late 20s, and my grandkids to live in this world. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right. The Occupy movement um, and then the Sanders campaign and then where the progressive movement is today are are all tied in. Uh, So but back to uh, the progressive caucus, um, we launched, like I said, in in July of of 2016. um, And our mission at the time was to work on issues that affect wealth inequality uh, to try to get progressive candidates elected in Northeast Ohio, um, and then to hold Hillary Clinton accountable to implement the most progressive platform in the history of the Democratic Party. Because we really didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> we, we assumed, you know, there's no possibility of, of Trump winning the election. Of course, you know, everybody was stunned when that happened. Um, so then that part of our mission switched to becoming a Trump resistance organization. And uh, in November of 2016, a week after... But resisting by advocating for progressive policy still. Yes, but also to thwart... Well, calling out... Yeah, yeah. Thwart the implementation of the Trump agenda. Okay. Uh, Same, you know... Yeah. Same thing. And we actually organized the first big anti-Trump protest uh, a week after the election. And then in December and January the indivisible groups came along and uh we immediately connected with them now who's um, indivisible I've, I've i'm aware of that who is indivisible for anyone who hasn't heard of them they're um Ind- indivisible is a resistance group um nationwide that focuses strictly on combating the trump administration mm-hmm. okay our, our organization the progressive caucus fo- focuses on everything progressive which I noticed in lot. your newsletter you tend you amplify a lot of what's going on. It's not just what's in your, your that organ, events you guys are organized. You're you're really like 
calling out all the things that are going around again with ally organizations. And, and, and one of the things that, that we did, you know, right from the beginning is connect with the other activist organizations in the county, and our goal was to become close allies with them. Um, in fact, you know, the Progressive Caucus, um, right now we have about 3,000 active members, um, but a lot of our members are like members of other organizations, uh, the Democratic Socialists. Um, but then there's organizations like we connected immediately with the End Poverty Now Coalition. Um, and, and the End Poverty Now March at the Republican Convention was actually our, one of our first big events. Um, so we connect with those groups, we promote their events. And then when we get to campaigns like we're on now, the Lead Safe Initiative, we have a network of allies that we can like help get the signatures you know so we're we're kind of a networking organizations to progressive organizations that you know already existed or like in the case of the democratic socialists they their chapter reformed and now it it has hundreds of active members you know they reformed after the bernie campaign but it had been dormant for a while um in in the cleveland area um one of our first big events in October of 2016, um, we co-hosted an event with Black Lives Matter Cleveland. And it was a protest out in front of the Cleveland Police Union's headquarters after they had endorsed Trump. I don't know if you guys were here then, but the Cleveland Police Union actually endorsed Trump for the presidential election. Wow. And uh, an, an interesting Subnote to this, which I think actually is a positive for 2020, um, we had access to about 10,000 emails that we had from the Bernie campaign. And so we sent out, okay, come to the protest at the Cleveland Police Union that we're organizing with Black Lives Matter Cleveland to protest their endorsement of Trump. There were about 20 angry emails that I got back, and and when you get twenty emails back, mm -hmm. there's a lot uh, there's a there's a lot more people who are angry that just didn't bother to send the email. Yeah, there's that spoken unspoken ratio. Right, that legislators live by that too. I understand. But these were actually Trump supporters, and we had their email because they were Bernie supporters, and I have read that there were actually about twelve percent of the people who voted for Bernie then turned around in the fall and voted for Trump. I don't think that's going to happen this time around, but I, I think... Well, that also gets called... There were... Um, I remember hearing... Because that gets thrown at, like, Bernie people sometimes as saying, like, oh, they were kind of spoiled children. Like, there was... But then it turns out that the amount of people who were angry that Clinton didn't win went and voted for McCain. That percentage was higher right, than exactly. the, Bernie, the Bernie voters who went and voted for Trump. Exactly. Well, my point is not to. I hate. I hate bringing that stuff up, though. It doesn't get us anywhere. The point is, like, yeah, we're. But I think that's a segment of the population that should Bernie get the nomination this time, that will vote for him instead of Trump. Well, I think that with a problem, we're, we're just to like, and yeah, we should move on from 2016. But I, I do think what ha kind of happened in 2016 was for a lot of people. Um, in like from the center to the right or even outside of politics, you know, Clinton was there like, oh, I'm not voting for Trump. I'm voting against Clinton. 
They're like that. I I know people like that, or or weren't gonna get up and vote for her and just be like, uh, um, there weren't as many people who were like that with Bernie, right? Like I I have relatives here who are very conservative, but when I remember having conversations about the primary in Ohio, like they're like. I could see voting for, I don't like Trump, but I could see voting for Bernie. But then they had all these Clinton biases. And it's like, I have my problems with Clinton from the progressive side. And the, the things that they were against her, I'd probably be like, no, that's crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, and, but it, it, it was hard to overcome that. And so for them, they were like, it was that both sides were like, I need to get out and vote against the thing. Not to mention just all the election stuff that goes on, even, you know, in the national level with, um, purges and and what republicans do that they've done in ohio and they did in in other states like that so um but yeah i i the reason i had you on this show though is because i feel like i i have been susceptible to that like every four years less so you know like bernie actually wore me down because at that point i was like i felt like every four years i get really vested in who's going to win for president and then just kind of ultimately like uh presidents are all bad <laughs> right getting right, really disillusioned right, with like right. what's the point of always staring up at this top office and like and so this year i wanted to be like more ground level and be aware of what's going on in my community because the other thing that's important i feel with bernie is if we want all these things he's um talking about in his platform it gets sidelined that he, we need to fulfill what he talks about with the political revolution Right. We need to elect more progressives. We need to show that on the ground level, there's a progressive voting block that needs to be addressed. Right. And that's like I said, that's one of our uh, missions. Uh, And and your mayor, Michael Dylan Brennan, was uh, he was endorsed by our organization and won. You know, we've had victories around the county. Um, We had two Cleveland City Council candidates were endorsed by us and they won. and uh, we've got about 25 candidates that are going to run for municipal elections nice. this year. You know, so we're, we're trying to, you know, a bottom-up type thing. Um, now, back to, you know, kind of like our history and, and how it ties in today, if, if, you know, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, our membership, I would estimate that maybe about 75% would I would identify as Democrats then um, now we work with the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party when we can uh, we worked a lot with them in the midterms you know to try to to stop the Republicans having unchecked power in Washington um, but we work outside of them when we cannot work with them uh, we actually have about, I don't know if you know how this works, but in, it, all county parties have uh, what's called precinct committee leaders that make up the central committee and they vote on party chair bylaws and stuff. Um, we got about 150 central committee candidates elected uh, last year. Now, how, and, how and big are those elect? I'm just curious, what's that look like um, as far as how you win those elections? Is that like you have to court a small group of like the party people? No, you get elected just in your precinct. Just like it's just a, it's a so it's like a, an elected office, like political, like you can just go to door to door. Exactly. Okay. And that's how we got those precinct committee candidates elected. We had a candidate that was running for party chair. Uh, our candidate did not win. Um but we're operating as a caucus within the Democratic Party, trying to promote Medicare for all, 
Green New Deal. You know, those are now platform that a part of the Democratic Party is advocating. And so that's what we're doing locally, okay? Um, but some of our members don't consider themselves Democrats at all. Uh, we have a, a lot of independents. We have uh, socialists. We have communists. We have the, most of the Democratic socialists in, in Northeast Ohio are also progressive caucus members. So, you know, we are not officially connected you know, with any political party. But a lot of our members are very connected in the, the Democratic Party. I'm also the Democratic Party city leader in Middleburg Heights, okay, but that's a different hat I wear, you know, other than Progressive Caucus political director, see. Um, and as our organization evolved the last few years, we had two big spurts and growth of membership where folks came into the organization who were not connected with the Bernie campaign. The first I, I mentioned was connecting with the indivisible groups. Um, and because we were so active in organizing the first protests and then uh, the visits to Rob Portman's office as various pieces of legislation, uh, when they were trying to to completely repeal the Affordable Care Act, you know, we were always down there. Um, but we got folks involved in our organization who some were previously never engaged politically. Um, I went to one of the early indivisible meetings was at our office, and there were about fifty people there, and um, and we have you know we're always registering voters, and I. I held up this voter registration, said, anybody need to register to vote? And eight of the 50 people there weren't even registered to vote. But they were so angered at Trump's election that they had become politically engaged enough to attend an indivisible meeting. So we had a lot of growth then. And, and that was, you know, the anger the first few months were when Trump was in office. And like any anger or any movement, it subsides and you got to move up on to the next anger. Um, and, and just a note about activism in general. For a person to become an activist, they are inherently angry at something that, that's going on. Because if, if you're not an activist, maybe you're sitting at home watching TV and you're not angry, see? Uh, or maybe you are angry, but you just can't take that extra step. And, and, and a lot more people are taking that extra step because they're, they're, they're getting angry. But in 2017, were you, were you guys in Cleveland then? Okay. Um, our, our, our next big area of growth was uh, when we connected with the greater Cleveland congregations um, to oppose the Quicken Loans Arena renovations. And uh, what we saw there was $144 million in taxpayer money, um, $88 million from the city of Cleveland and the rest from the, the county government, um, being nothing more than a corporate welfare giveaway because it was to make Quicken Loans Arena look nicer. Um, now, at, at the time in 2017, well, what just occurred? Well, Cleveland got the Republican National Convention without those renovations. That's one of the biggest gigs you can get. Mm -hmm. The arena was selling out every night because the Cavaliers had LeBron James. 
So clearly, it's not like yeah, people yeah, are like, yes. I'm not going to the arena. It's so f- just like funky looking. Well, now and, the, the, the ironic <laughs> thing now is, as the renovations are actually being, you know, put built, and they do look nice. There's a nice glass atrium, new restaurants inside, um, but it's half empty because LeBron James is gone, and concerts are still selling out. But concerts were selling out before. Um, they, you know, they, they built the renovations. Well, the point of that is, like, A, Dan Gilbert and the owner of the Cavs could pay for those renovations if they actually will bring in more revenue. Why shouldn't he pay for them, like any businessman? And B, what could the county and city do with $144 million mm-hmm. in tax revenue that they're giving away? Um, and we got a lot of growth in membership and, and, and our... Uh, our organization was very engaged in getting signatures, you know, to, to, for the, the referendum. Ultimately, what happened, um, we had achieved victory um, in this. The Cleveland City Council put it through the courts. You know, they didn't want to, you know, they kept claiming this is good for the city. And then finally they said they were going to withdraw the, the, the renovations, withdrew the ordinance that authorized the tax money. But... Um, one of the organizations we worked with, they had, they, they pulled the petitions and some backroom deals defeated us, not the will of the citizens. And, um, you know, there's some anger there. Um, but yet it was a great grassroots effort. Um, we had received calls from a lot of national news outlets because citizen activist groups had never ever successfully thwarted a multi-million dollar sports deal and we came this close to to doing it um but that's an example of the type of things that that our organization does now now last year uh we focused on the midterm elections um we did have some of our candidates you know win primary elections uh, some of our candidates then won general elections. Um, one of our, our biggest endorsements and our biggest wins uh, was State Senator Nikki Antonio. Uh, that's on the west side, Senate District 23. Uh, her opponent, Martin Sweeney, who was my opponent mm-hmm. in the 2014 primary, former Cleveland City Council president, um, was endorsed by the, the County Democratic Party uh, and, and Nikki's main endorsement was the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus, and uh, she ended up winning that election. And uh, she's actually, I don't know if you know the name. Uh, no, I got to get my ear to the ground yes, more on the local uh, politicians. First openly uh, LGBTQ member uh, in the Ohio General Assembly. Um, so your focus right now, um, the thing I see the most coming out of the CCPC is the uh, the Cleveland-led advocates for safe housing clash. Um, and I just I, I can't believe that this didn't come across my radar more. Uh, my, you know, from what I read, uh, the uh, the Rolling Stone article right. that I think I found in one of your newsletters. Researchers from Case Western Reserve University found that 10.7% of children born in 2012 were found to have elevated blood levels. Kids under six in Cuyahoga County accounted for 41% of Ohio's elevated exposure. And then um, 
Jenna goes on to just talk about what what happens with children exposed to this, and um, also that it's it's overwhelmingly an African American issue because of the neighborhoods it's hitting. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, um, we were well. We had always been um, connected with an organization called the Cleveland Lead Safe Network. Um, Spencer Wells, uh, activist, has been working on this problem for years. Um, and, and just, a, just a, a quick note of the problem and then yeah. what's happened and, and what we're, we're attempting as a solution. Um, it's been known for decades that any dwelling built before 1978 um, likely has lead paint. Um, and, and it's been known scientifically for decades that what happens with the lead in the paint is over time and it continues okay is it gets into the dust okay so it's not like okay you know we're sitting here in a room you see paint on the wall it's not like you have to get close to the wall and you know (laughs) peel off the paint and lick the lead to get it it gets into the dust and you know if you imagine this living room okay there's dust here even if you know even if you don't dust every day, there's dust. Oh, there's there's okay. dust. Right. <laughs> well, um, it's very say. it's very young kids who are susceptible to lead poisoning, and they tend to play on the floor, to play on the, the furniture, and you know you can breathe in particles of, of the dust, and and so that's how kids get lead poisoning. Is there any sort of lead abatement they have to do that they've had to do in the past to? Is there nothing that can be done if there's lead paint that you cover it with this sort of stuff and it prevents it from getting out into particulates? Oh, no, there's uh, what's in the ordinance that that we're trying to get on the ballot, City of Cleveland, is is a requirement that landlords test their houses for or test their dwellings. It's, it's, it can be apartment or, you know, rental house um, for lead poisoning. OK, and and. The the cost of this is about a hundred dollars, maybe a couple hundred dollars at the most, depending on the size uh, of the dwelling. And then, if it's deemed that there's the possibility of lead in in the dwelling, it's called remediation, and this will will, will create a whole new industry of lead remediators. They come in and and they fix the lead poisoning problem. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not sure exactly how they do it. Just some numbers, okay? Um, there are approximately 86,000 rental units in the city of Cleveland. Um, about 10,000 have been inspected and may be remediated and are deemed to be lead safe. So that's a huge number that aren't lead safe. Um, and I, I don't know if you remember in January that the, there was a front page article on the Plain Dealer talking about how the uh, lead poisoning, lead poisoned kids are a huge problem with the Cleveland Municipal School District because they, they have impulsive behavior. You know, that's, you know, at best, learning disability, impulsive behavior. Sometimes more violence, violence. aggression can come out more from that, I've read. Another statistic, um, and if you, if you know what's going on in the Cuyahoga County Jail, the, the treatment. I, I wanted to ask you about that too, because I see you're, you're involved with uh, the coalition to stop inhumanity exactly. at the Cuyahoga um, County Jail. Well, I mean, they're they're actually 
the issues are related. You are seven times more likely to end up in jail if you have lead poisoning than if you don't. And part of the problem with the Cuyahoga County Jail is overcrowding. Now, it's overcrowded because they kind of went into the for-profit prison business, but it's also overcrowded because of the lead poisoning issue. Um, and if you think of the cost in public sector dollars, and we actually have um, a group from Columbia University law students who are going to give us a figure on this to, during doing research. Um, all of the extra services that the Cleveland City School District has to provide for lead poison kids. If you think of Medicaid, majority are low income, the, the medical cost of lead poisoning, which is incurable. And then think of the extra costs to incarcerate kids who become adults who maybe yeah. become criminals because they have lead poisoning. That stuff's always really important to just show that like, because it's kind of sad. It's like you have to make those arguments and have that data to, to bring people around. But at a certain level, it's kind of like, but it's also we're ruining people's lives and poisoning them. It, 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 it's almost like it, 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 what's like so many issues like this when you, you explore it. You, this has been known as a problem for decades. And, and I just want to go through, through the, the timeline of yes. how, how Clash was created what was happening for decades and, and the city government's reaction. Um, just a, a quick note about the name Clash. Um, we were trying to figure out what to call the coalition that's, that's doing the initiative. And on the way to the meeting that, you know, we were discussing this, I just happened to have an old Clash CD playing. And so that's, you know, it popped into my mind, and it, and since it fit, Cleveland Med Advocates. Like, there's got to be an acronym there. So, We're yes, going to find it. Yes. Yeah, so Joe, Joe Strummer, you know, and the decision oh, I love to him. put the Clash CD in, in my car was the, the cause of the name. Um, but we started, the coalition started meeting in November. And what we took was a piece of legislation that then City Councilman Jeff Johnson had drafted and tried to introduce in Cleveland City Council in 2017. Um, and Jeff Johnson, I don't know, you guys were here in 17, he ran for mayor uh, unsuccessfully. And, and he was, in the interest of full disclosure, the Progressive Caucus's endorsed candidate for mayor. Um, but his legislation never even got a hearing. Now, it got criticized publicly do you, uh, is there I'm just curious but just I mean you'll maybe get to this but where would the opposition to this lie is it from real estate and land you know like the the renters who just don't want to be forced to address it we suspect there's a little bit of that um, we also know not suspect that a large number of Cleveland City Councilmen are themselves Pro-led? No, no, no. <laughs> Owners of apartments or rental units. Yeah, so they have a self, so... Right. Um, a conflict but, of but, interest. But, but it's also... Possibly. Um, it's a, a very complicated problem to deal with legislatively, um, and you have to complete... Uh, you have to make new bureaucracies to, to make sure this is done 
correctly. Mm. And uh, one of the things, if you follow Cleveland city government, is, is they don't like to do things until they have to, and they don't like to do complicated things. Now, the exception is when something like the Quicken Loans Arena renovations come up, they can get that passed quickly, okay? Um, it, it, it's not that hard for them because, you know, that's, oh, this is the corporate establishment. We have to please them. But there is no big money groups backing the lead poison kids, see? It's, it, it's something that outrages the community, but, you know, it, it's only something that activist organizations can deal with and activist organizations tend not to have a lot of money you know we just have boots on the ground you know so that's that's where we're at um since jeff johnson put his legislation in city council in 2017 about 2200 kids have been diagnosed with lead poisoning now when we say diagnosed there's a lot more that are undiagnosed at this time uh, one of the things that, that Cleveland City Council has um, kind of promoted to, to, to pretend that they're dealing with the problem is, oh, well, we need increased lead testing. Well, that sounds good, except the folks who live in the inner city apartment units tend to be very transient. And so... You know, if you test somebody, oh, there's no lead poisoning, then they move into a new dwelling, then they could get lead poisoning. So, so the solution is to make these housing units lead safe. Okay, testing is nice, but that's not the ultimate solution uh, to the problem. So anyways, we started drafting um, an initiative out of the, the proposed ordinance Jeff Johnson has. And one of the things that, that, that Jeff got criticized for was his legislation included homeowners, okay? And we decided that homeowners are responsible for their home. And most homeowners, okay, like if I was living in a house that was built before 1978 and my grandkids were coming over to play or you know when my kids were younger if I was a homeowner it's my responsibility to get it taken care of if you are a tenant there's certain trust that you should have with your landlord and so it should be the landlord's yeah. responsibility to take care of it and voluntary hasn't worked only 10,000 of 86,000 have been inspected and determined to be lead free. So it took from November until the end of January a lot of meetings to construct legislation that we believe would be litigation proof um, and would be sellable as an initiative. Now, what happened was sometime in early January. Um, a plain dealer reporter named Rachel Dizel got wind that we were pursuing this initiative. And uh, unbeknownst to us, one Saturday, a front-page article appeared on the plain dealer. Ah, a group is coming up with an initiative to, to solve the lead problem in the city of Cleveland. 
immediately, the powers that be, Cleveland City Council, President Kevin Kelly, Mayor Frank Jackson, got all of these foundations together. The United Way Foundation, the Mount Sinai Foundation, these are big bucks in Cleveland. And this was, I'll tell you why this was a plus for us. And they had a big press conference in the rotunda of Cleveland City Hall in which they said they didn't acknowledge our initiative at all because we hadn't actually pulled the petitions yet. Uh, and they said that, yes, lead is a, a big problem. Um, and also the article about the how horrible lead poisoning is in the Cleveland schools came out. So th they said lead is a big problem. Uh, we are going to solve this within 10 years. We're going to call experts around the country. We're going to have a lead safe summit towards the end of the year. Um, Frank Jackson himself at that press conference says, yeah, we should have did this 10 years ago, kind of flippantly. That's actually true, but that's the kind of attitude that we're dealing with. And at that press conference, there was what we said in our rebuttal was no dates, no dollars. But there was a promise of the foundations to put money into the issue. And, and the reason that's good is... Um, what we would like is a public-private partnership to help pay for the tests and the remediation so the burden doesn't fall completely on the landlord because people vote in their own self-interest. And, and, and I think if the landlords knew that a majority of the cost was going to be paid for, they would want so have you gotten these foundations to come back with a no, tangible if if you you know whatever like no it's that's not, not how it, it's what the match if it'd be match funds or what yeah none of that's been none of that's happened. nothing tangible's happened we, we, and i'm we, curious with the with the reporter who dropped that story did she think she was helping or she just had a scoop and had to roll with it like, i think so she, yeah because she's been very positive in her coverage of us uh, we got very good coverage when we had our press conference and uh we had coverage on one of the TV stations this morning. But would it have been, would it have been better way. for what you had been laying the groundwork for if that hadn't gone public and you had been ready to, like it had gone public when you were ready to put something out there or did it all it work out fine? It, it, well, I think it, 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 we're not sure how it's going to play out, but I, I think it worked out fine because he, here's what's happened since. Yeah. Um, our legislation has been hand-delivered to the offices of all 17 city councilmen. So they know it. Okay. Um, some are pretending they don't know anything about it uh, because we've been going to the various Dem Club meetings to talk about the issue, and that's what, oh, really? Will you, you know, they, they're like, well, why are you guys doing this? We're, we're working to solve the problem. Well, they're working to pretend to solve the problem, okay? But we have forced several things, okay? Um, one is their new organization um, it has been meeting every other week, and actually CLASH members are attending the meetings. And when CLASH members attend the meetings and they talk individually with the foundation members, they're supportive. What we think is that they're going to come up with something. Uh, it may be close to our initiative, but they do not want to give the activist groups credit for solving the problem. That's why they're not speaking to us or, or negotiating us. Our preference would be to sit down with them, to look at the legislation, 
um, and say, okay, this sounds good, this sounds good, maybe we should tweak it here, so that our attorneys and our lead experts could have a bill passed immediately. Because what we're doing with this initiative process is we have to get 5,000 signatures, and, and we can do this. By the way, as we speak, there's about 25 of our signature getters down yeah. at the St. Patrick's Day Parade. But our preference is to work with them and, and to come up with a legislation that they just pass and goes into effect. Because with this initiative process, when we get the 5,000 signatures, there's still, um, it takes about two weeks, maybe less, for the County Board of Elections to verify that the, the signatures are, are valid. Um, and then C Cleveland City Council has 90 days to look at the legislation and either pass it or offer suggestions that for changes that we agree with. Um, and then if they don't do either of those, then it goes on the November ballot. Well, we would prefer that they look at it now, not wait until we get the signatures. You know, there's no reason if they feel that lead is a problem, and they publicly have all said they do. There's, there's no reason for them not to look at the legislation now and pass it now or offer suggestions for changes now so the problem begins to be solved now. You know, not wait for an election in November, which we know they couldn't campaign against see so it's it, it other than not wanting to give the activist community credit there's there's no logical reason is this to do what so is um i mean is this the sort of thing where it's also important for should people be calling specific like city council members or whatever like if they get enough like actual like you know people calling in to demand this or showing up at, at certain events to just so they see that the, like the the public is is demanding it right now beyond the signatures. Yes, for definitely. Um, you know, one of the things though um, that we're focused on getting the signatures right now because and we're within a few weeks away of of turning them in um, because I, that is another point where there'll be publicity and the the question is asked. Well look at this legislation and if you don't like it what's your plan see um and it's different than the 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 referendum on the quicken loans arena because they made the argument that this is economically beneficial yeah you can't there is an argument for it that someone could make and and but this is something that seems so like once you look at it it's like why do you we have to do something right you you're on the record of saying we're already 10 years past due or, you know, city right. officials, as you said, which is to me like a huge tell and a huge gap. Yeah, I would hold that right up. And then with all the this, everything you have that you can tangibly show for that, it's it's really it is ridiculous that this is something we don't have to wait till November. Right. You're right. saying we have to wait till November. Or, yeah, yeah, there's, but there's no reason for it. Exactly. But we have to move the process along because they're not. So doing the sig just doing the signatures, like ultimately, yeah, it leads to where like, well, eventually we can, you know, we'll be forcing their hand on some legislation in in the referendum, but in the well, meantime, in the but the step or the initiative, yeah, um, but the interim steps are useful in themselves, just from like you said, that you get the publicity and you have this tangible thing you can hold up as saying this many people, right? And you mentioned the the Rolling Stone article. There's a Washington Post reporter that's following our our canvassers around this week. 
Oh, okay, great. And she's probably down with the St. Patrick's Day crew. <laughs> but uh, she went in, uh, you know, we've been going to the fish fries, you know, Catholic folks, Lent, and, you know, that type of thing. Cool. And so what's the deadline for gathering those signatures again? You well, for an initiative, there is no deadline. There's no deadline. Okay, so you, um, you think you're pretty close to getting it, and then well, what'll be your next step after that? Let, I, I should explain. Yeah. Um, there is a deadline to get it on the November ballot. But when you launch an initiative, you know, let's say we, you know, we didn't get everything done in time to get it on November, it would go to the next election mm-hmm. in March, the, the primary election in 2020. Okay. Now, for a referendum like we did with the Q, there's a deadline of 30 days after the legislation is passed, but not for an initiative. But we want early April is our time frame to make sure that if they delay, they use their whole 90 days and the two weeks the County Board of Elections has, it has to be all set to go on the ballot August 7th from the County Board of Elections point of view. So, so, so we're dealing with Cleveland City Government right. and the County Board of Elections to get an initiative on the ballot in November. Okay. Um, so the, the, the other thing I see that's coming up um, that unfortunately I'm going to miss next Thursday, it's uh, Deb and I actually have our first show in a while, uh, is the Green, uh, the, the Green New Deal Town Hall. Yes. Is yes. that something you're organizing, um, or is that something well, you're we're amplifying? Part of, we are part of a coalition of, of groups that are promoting the Green New Deal in Cuyahoga County. And um, two national issues, um, we're very involved also in promoting Medicare for All. Um, and we're actually the Northeast Ohio affiliate of an organization called Our Revolution, which grew out of the Sanders campaign. Um, and Medicare for All, Our Revolution, National Nurses United, and we're the local organizers for that. Um, we actually um, had some barnstorm events for the Medicare for All. And if you, you, you it sounds like you have our newsletter up, um, you, you'll see the Medicare for All canvases coming up in April. Yep. Um, we're, we're partnered with the Medicare for All canvases with a group called SPAN Ohio, Single Payer Action Network. Um, and with the Green New Deal, the, our coalition is um, the Sierra Club, Amalgamated Transit Union, Cleveland Peace Action. There's a number of organizations um, involved in that. Um, and I, you probably know the Sunrise Movements, the national organization. Um, last Friday, um, did you see the student tri- strike for climate action? Yes, I saw that was going on. I found out about it late. Um, they yeah, went to public I, I, square. I actually um, was one of the speakers at that, and and was promoting the town hall and the Green New Deal and the work that you know that we're doing there. Um, so, I mean, the the time to to act for climate change is now, um, and and the whole the, and and it's it, this this is all directly tied in with the progressive influence in, in the Democratic Party locally and nationally um, because Medicare for all is supported by 84% of Democrats um, and actually 52% of Republicans. Okay, so, and, and right now at climate change, 70% believe that climate change is real climate change deniers are becoming almost an extinct species 
I'm really interested in like in Ohio, it seems like there's such a good argument to make for like, well, we have, you know, this blue collar worker tradition and we have so many things we could be doing to reinvigorate a manufacturing economy or like rebuilding our infrastructure. Right. Right. And, and it's, um, obviously we have to do something to make sure the world isn't destroyed. Okay. But for us, right. I think the world will be fine. No, I, I think I, we're in you're trouble. Right. You're, you're right. Our species is destroyed. And a lot of other ones, like our habitat is in danger, but yeah. And, and, but then you look at, on the other hand, um, now, you know, economic news, oh, unemployment is lower, but underemployment is skyrocketing, okay? Um, and so you have a massive job creation program like Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal to also solve the climate uh, problem. How much um, have you looked into, or I'm curious at the town hall, how much does this get down to like focusing on, I mean, there's, there's elements of you can focus on like, who do we have in different elected offices or allies to help support like the national legislation of the new green deal. But also what, how do you, what are the discussions that you're hoping to see happen around? Like, well, what can we transform about how we run a city or small, you know, uh, that would that would be there's, a case study and show success at a local level for the Green New Deal. There's several elements to that, and I'll, I'll try to explain them all. And if I don't, ask me what I don't explain. Um, well, you mentioned locally. Um, one of the things that and 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 CCPC has a Green New Deal committee that's exploring this in great detail, and it's also comprised of representatives from the other organizations. But for CCPC specifically, because some of the organizations like Sierra Club aren't in the, you know, electoral process as much as we are, what we're, we're trying to do is come up with a Green New Deal platform for our local municipal candidates. And, and, and in 2019, it's just suburban municipalities that have elections. No city of Cleveland, no midterms. Um, and, and some of that, like bigger suburbs like Lakewood, for example, could have public power. Now, you know, there's some problems with public power in the city of Cleveland, but the concept of public power is a good one. You could have, well, let's push to get as many solar-powered homes in our community as possible. See, so that's the type of thing we're, we're pushing at, at, at our local municipal elections for, for Green New Deal candidates. Now, the national level, um, 86 members of the House and 11 senators have supported Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution, which is right now not policy with a specific, we're going to spend this dollars and, you know, a bill that would actually you know, create the Green New Deal would be thousands of pages long, you know. It's, it's more like the aspirations than the mechanics. It's a, the aspirations, right. So you would think that there would be more in Congress who would support the aspirations. Now, it's different when you start to put the bill together because then you might say, well, no, we shouldn't put this money here. We should do, you, you, you see what I'm saying? But yeah. the concept of, Let's have a Green New Deal. Okay, let's create green infrastructure and create millions of jobs. 
no Ohio legislator has supported the Green New Deal resolution. And so, you know, we're focused in Cuyahoga County on Marcy Captor and Marcia Fudge. Marcy Captor West Side, Marcia Fudge East Side. Um, and the, the, there's no point in talking to the Republicans on this. Um, but what we're, we're met with is, well, just for example, I didn't go into the media in Marcia Fudge's office. I went to the Marcy Captor one. And her staff listened to everything we were saying and agreed with us. And so then our question was, well, why doesn't she support the Green New Deal resolution? And they just him hawed around like, well, maybe she doesn't know about it. <laughs> well, if you remember, you don't know about it? Never heard of that. <laughs> you know, you know. Wow. Um, wow. So actually, we invited Marcy to our town hall next Thursday, and they're on recess. I mean, that's we scheduled it for them because they're on recess. Um, so what it is, what we think is how Speaker Pelosi, you know, doesn't want to buck the corporate interests and so laughs it off. And we think that there's pressure there. So one of the things that, you know, we're trying to do is to get as many people as possible to, um, call Marcy Captor's office, call Marcia Fudge's office and simply urge them to support the the resolution uh when i spoke at the student climate action friday i read off their phone numbers and asked folks to call you know um so that's kind of okay where we're at with the progressive wing of the party versus the the corporate centrists even though what you I, I actually uh ocasio cortez coined as the climate delayers who are about becoming as dangerous as the deniers. Exactly, exactly. Um, but it's because they're uneasy about bucking. It sounds like it's the same leaders. thing on the on the national level as what you said you encountered. You're encountering with the Cleveland lead thing, where you have the establishment, like the activists, are pushing this big idea that's very popular. But they're like, but we don't want you to have credit and feel empowered. Exactly. And exactly. it's like that the Green New Deal is coming from, you know, young activist members of Congress like Ocasio-Cortez. Although, I mean, it's got establishment backing, too. Like, I think Jeff Merkel. Merkley. It, Merkley is uh, the senator who's backing it. And, you know, obviously Bernie Sanders is the groundswell of support for it. That's like, right, there's a parade for you. to. It's the same thing as I remember. There was a story about FDR. He said, like, I want to do all these things. Now make me. Like, he told a lot of like union organizers and things like that like with the new is like i need you to get out there and show the i need a parade to get in front of to some degree and well, but they're not seeing that there's a parade for these great things that like you could get up and champion and then just be like I, I take it and as 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 an asset as opposed to being an adversary right but great change always comes from the bottom up and and so you know what we need to do, and 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 in Green New Deal and Medicare for All, they're going to be major focuses of our organization when we get these signatures done. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a temporary major focus, um, but there's a little bit unease too. Like, well, of course, we want to beat Trump in 2020, and then then you see national political commentators will make the statement, yeah, but you know, we 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 got to have somebody centrist. 
Okay, we you know we we can't go too far. That's new advice. I've never heard that before. Right, but 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 do they really mean that, or are they protecting their their own interests? And and the example I would give is, um, think of what happened in the Republican Party. Right after Barack Obama was elected, you had the creation of the Tea Party. Okay, ultra right wing, and those were the activists of the party. Okay, there's a direct line to Trump's election from the Tea Party. So the the ultra right, because there was energy there. Well, that's where the centrists would say you're you're basically spelling out a cautionary tale. It's like we don't want the left to have like the Donald Trump of the left, like thinking that it's just going to be this mirror image of an authoritarian nightmare that like will happen from the other side. Well, but but what I was going to get at. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so, and, 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 and if you think of, like, the, the number of candidates, Medicare, Medicaid for all, Medicare for all, I'm sorry, um, Green New Deal, the majority of the, of, of the big-name presidential candidates support it. Um, so if you think of, like, okay, this is, like, our goal is to, to have the Green New Deal and Medicare for all on the platform of the uh, 2020 presidential nominee, okay, passed at the convention. okay. The uneasiness is, A, the corporate interests, but B, maybe that's being expressed as, well, will this be able to beat Trump? Because that all sounds good, but if it causes Trump to win again, then it's not a good idea to promote it now. But, but think of, like, the, the, the folks that are in the center. Okay, if there's a campaign of ideas between Trump's agenda and a progressive agenda, Green New Deal, Medicare for All, public which, college, yeah, I mean. Which we know a majority of Americans support, including those who are in the center who maybe don't identify with a political party. What I would argue is that's exactly what we need to make sure Trump is defeated, not uh, somebody advocating like Hillary Clinton did, yeah. slow incremental change. Well, what I appreciate right now, at least in 2020, is how much of Bernie's platform is being aped or like, you know, everyone's kind of like, I've got that too. Like the grand, right, like, exactly. you know, we uh, like, you know, a lot of progressives will have, you know, the thing about Bernie that makes most people really kind of tied to him is like, well, but he's been saying this forever. I've been listening, you know, I've been following him for years and years and years before he ever was had a national stage on the presidential thing. And that's why I was, wow, he's running. That's great. I never, oh, I, I would hear him all yeah. the time and be like, who is this guy? Why isn't he, you know, his, he, his voice more amplified. But the great thing is that like, they're all kind of aping his platform this time around. And it is up to us that, you know, if we end up with, you know, whoever it is, and they're saying that they aspirationally want these platforms, it's up to us to make sure the mechanics are good. Our sound, exactly. Yeah, that it's exactly. like, oh, it's a Green New Deal, and we're going to, you know, only invest in nuclear or something, which there is a debate for that, but it's like, that would be like, ah, <laughs> right. there's more right. to it than that. And with, and, and then, too, um, not just Bernie's platform, but Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, just recently decided that they were no longer going to take corporate contributions. Yeah, they're adopting it, the same... Exactly, right. I mean, and, and that's and that's great, except... You can also view their decision as, well, they won't have a chance in the Democratic nomination if they take corporate contributions. It'll be very interesting to see, uh, you know, it's likely Biden's going to get into the race if he, too, 
will swear off corporate contributions. Yeah. Well, the last thing I want for this show is to get in. There's enough 2020 speculation right, out right. there, and I don't, you know, what? Um, but I, I really, um, yeah, I like what your your group has been about. It sounds great how you've been talking about how you're building coalitions, and I want to stay, keep a close eye on what you guys are up to. I want to make sure um, I've covered everything that there is. It's coming up. So, uh, is there anything you want to speak to that's coming up? I'm, I'm thinking this will probably get out, um, hopefully before the end of March. Okay. Uh, maybe next week. Maybe a little. Maybe the following week. But is there a chance you could get out before Thursday? Next Thursday? Yes. I can shoot for it. So yeah. To, uh, so what do you have that's coming hall. up? That, that, I, yeah. The, the, you have the Green New Deal Town Hall. If nothing else, I will like. I will be sharing that and plugging that and mentioning it. Um, I would love to have you back from time to time, sure, or sure. even we can even just do we can do things over the phone to check in on the progress of these things and keep kind of hitting on it. And here, I would like to hear what came out of the Green New Deal uh, town hall and going forward. Just be aware of like uh, keeping a pulse on progressive politics here in Cleveland. Absolutely, uh, I will be putting links in the footnotes for everything that's coming up with like how people can help out with Clash and how they can follow on your newsletter. Um, so if you have any last uh, final plugs you want to give for action coming up, let well, hear them. Um, if you're listening to this and this is the first you heard of the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus and, and you would like to see more, our website, cuycpc.org uh, or like the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus Facebook page. Um, or our, our Twitter handle, too. Um, what I think is going to come up in late March, early April, what actually I know is going to come up, is we're going to get these signatures and turn them in. And we'll have a press conference. Um, and if you're getting our newsletter, look for that press conference. The more people that are at these things, you know, the better. Um, and then uh, we will proceed with the Green New Deal. Uh, the Medicare for All canvases are going to start in April. Um, but I mean, you know, there's ongoing work, things that come up in, in the Ohio general assembly. They, the Senate passed the heartbeat bill. Now it's now going to the house. Mike DeWine said he's going to sign it. Um, you know, we're going to have to act on that and do our best to stop that. And other legislation that we know is coming at the state level that is, is very regressive. I, I like to call Republican legislation as regressive. We're progressive. Our organization, uh, at some point, I'm not sure when we're going to do it, um, will have our membership vote on, well, our membership will be voting on endorsements um, for our municipal elections very soon, but we'll be voting on endorsement for the presidential campaign too. And, and we're not sure because... You know, we are, you know, we started out as a Bernie organization, but there will be a formal endorsement vote. Um, do you have, like, um, ever before that vote, is there ever, like, do people, do you have caucuses to gather and people, like, discuss? Or is it yes. just everyone goes away and, like, I think this, and here's, you all just blindly our, our, vote? Our process or? has worked, and we can't really do this with the presidential campaign. Um, we Any candidate that wants can apply for our endorsement. Um and we've had um, some Pinos apply, Pino being a progressive in name only. Um, I've not heard uh, that acronym. But, um, for example. I know Dinos. Uh, I've heard, yeah, or Rhinos. A General Assembly candidate last year who was getting tens of thousands of dollars from the fossil fuel industry applied for our endorsement. And so we couldn't 
<laughs> couldn't even put that to our membership. And it's not like this was a secret that, you know, that she was getting this. Um, I don't want to say any names, but it's your state senator. Um, it's, so, um, so, so, I mean, that, 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 that's what we have. Now, when we have more than one candidate apply for an endorsement, we've had uh, candidate forums where both candidates are invited to speak to our membership and then answer any questions they have. We had that for the Cleveland mayor election, um, and we had that for our state legislative races. Uh, we actually had uh, last year um, all of the Democratic candidates running for governor, except Richard Cordray, uh, come to uh, our candidate forum for governor. Now, we had separate ones for that because we couldn't find a time to get them all together. Um, and Dennis Kucinich, not surprisingly, overwhelmingly won our endorsement because he's progressive and a good number of our members were at one time Dennis Kucinich's constituents, okay? Um, our endorsement, though, our revolution endorses nationally candidates. And um, to get our revolution's national endorsement, a candidate has to first get the local affiliates' endorsement. So we were, that has actually very much enhanced our organization because a lot of our candidates then seek our revolution's national endorsement but it will it's an endorsement vote um what we do is we have a candidate questionnaire um the endorsement vote is electronically and uh our members have access to the questionnaire and if there's a candidate's forum we ask them to come and we try to we try to live stream it too um but if there's only one candidate and that's the majority of our suburban elections this year only have one ccpc candidate then it's just approve or disapprove from the questionnaire cool uh, we actually have an entire slate of candidates running lakewood city council every ward we have candidate running so well great steve i really appreciate coming down here and kind of learning the mechanics of the local politics scenes and, and yeah the scene that's going on so um I want to thank you for everything you're doing and keep doing and uh, look forward to having you back on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. I look forward to coming back. Great. Bye-bye. <laughs>